Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Our topical discussion this week touches on a subject that's very close to both of our hearts and it's certainly something that uh, pretty much occupies my every waking thought at the moment as we adjust to new ways of working with the COVID-19 um, way of working. This week we're talking about learning and development of staff, particularly training, and we're looking at some of the challenges and opportunities that it presents for both business owners and staff as we move into our new way of working. Now I found an article in Training Journal, not Draining Journal, Training Journal, um, that says that according to um, learning and development professionals, 76% of them say that more CEOs are actively championing the development of their workforce since coronavirus. Um, LinkedIn carried out a study uh, and it says that compared to October 2019, there has been a very definite uptake in attitude um, with with senior managers and, and chief execs. So I'm hopeful that that's that's going to be a good thing. Um, and for me as a trainer, one of the biggest challenges is not being able to be in the same room as people. And this this whole doing training online that um, has become the normal at the moment uh, and that's something that doesn't doesn't come naturally to me because I'd much rather be in a room full of people but what do you think about it Tracy? Yeah I tend to agree um, the way that I've done training over the years is I read the room and and you tailor your your training that you're going to deliver to to what feedback you get in the room so I was reading an article um, on the website trainingindustry.com which was saying that trainers themselves need to reskill to become proficient with yeah. remote meetings and training platforms and that that's so true I, I feel uncomfortable training remotely but I can see that there's a massive potential for that now um, and I think that we as trainers need to think about ways that we can make it work effectively. The reason for bringing this subject up was we had a discussion last week about um, a training course that one of us had been on and it was less than engaging and this article sort of talks through some of the things that you need to think about such as needing to incorporate more interaction, more question and answer sessions, making sure that your visual aids are way more engaging because you can't rely on your personality to light up the room. You've only got the visual aids that you can share on your screen. More use of videos, more polls, more breakout sessions. And they talk about um, also the need to provide regular breaks. And I think that's really, really important. Uh, you know, you could go a whole day's training, but you wouldn't do that without stopping for coffee breaks, lunch breaks, toilet breaks and I think even more importantly if you're sat if your um, cohort is sat staring at a screen as well uh, one thing that I, I really um, noticed and I thought actually yes that can make a massive difference and I don't know what you think Heather is the article advises you to avoid the distraction of apologizing every time the technology doesn't cooperate they say that that's a massive distraction if you're an apologizer because 
you highlight it initially rather than everybody just accepting that sometimes technology doesn't work you highlight the fact that you're a little bit uncomfortable with it and then your trainees start to look out for it and it becomes more important than the subject that you're teaching and i hadn't really thought about that one myself we do sometimes find ourselves apologizing a little bit too much for things beyond our control yeah and, but i think that's also true in the, in the training room people you know if technology isn't working yes, um there is that you keep the more you keep mentioning it the, the more you know people would have forgotten about it if your training is good enough by the end of the session but if you Yes, if you do keep on mentioning it, then it's just reinforcing it. So oh, how many really times have you been in a... <laughs> Sorry. How many times have you been in a, a training room where somebody keeps going on about the pens that don't work? You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's there's a way around that. Get some pens that work before you go into the training room. <laughs> Take them with you. <laughs> I, I take everything with me because you can't rely on a venue. They'll say, oh, yeah, we got a flip chart. Oh, yeah, we got pens. And you get there and there's two pages on a flip chart and a pen that hasn't been, you know, one green pen that hasn't, that's been worked to death and doesn't really do anything. So, yeah, always take your own kit with you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because even if you're really proficient with the technology, there's no guarantee the people that you're delivering the training to are as proficient with the technology so that's another consideration you know how much do you need to prepare them how much do you need to make sure that they've got somebody on hand that could actually help them with the technology if they get stuck because you're not there to do it for them yeah one thing i went on um uh, i was on a distance learning uh training course recently and one thing that they did do that was very good in the training pack that they sent out before the event they sent a crib sheet on how to use Zoom. So it, it didn't just assume that you'd figure it out, it actually gave you, this is how you use Zoom and this is how it will be used. Um, so I thought that was really good. Yeah. But there was a really interesting um, article in um, on the McKinsey website. And one bit in particular, they have a sort of infographic about how to create engagement and that feeling of community uh, in a virtual session and they they give some tips for it to feel like you're there in person with one another so the first thing they talk about before the session so they say make sure that you you are comfortable with the technology and that uh, and it's been tested think about how to um whether it's possible and and i again i was on some training recently where they had two people so there was the trainer and another person so one person was dealing with the with the technology bit running the polls for you know interaction and stuff like that but the trainer was able to focus on training so that worked really well and also they say about sending materials in advance giving people a chance to um either read through some stuff or send them the files that you're going to be sharing on a pen drive or something like that um and then during the session, use the, use the technology to its best advantage. Uh, keep video on. Keep video on. Don't turn video off. And look at the webcam and use gestures as, as if you were there in person. I ran a webinar this morning and I delivered it standing up exactly as if I was standing up in front of a room full of people. So it's these little things that start to make it more human and can get away from that 
you're looking at a screen and a screen is talking to you never mind the stuff that you've got to you've got to process but I'll, I'll the infographic is really good um it just gets you thinking so i'll share that on our on our website i found an article on mckinsey.com as well so it was another a good infographic but this one was what companies need to do to emerge stronger from this crisis and they talk about reskilling the workforce um one of, one of the articles that I read as well this week said, protect your learning budgets, otherwise you'll regret it later. And there's some research that's been done that um, the companies that cut their training budgets after the last um, financial crisis um, found that it took them a lot longer to, uh, um, to, to get back into um, profitability. So use your training budget to upskill your staff to cope with changes in the future so this article in mckinsey said you need to build a skill set that will help your employees to respond well to changes so it's reflecting on the idea that this may well not be the only time a company needs to be agile and it's just highlighted the need to make sure that your employees can actually adapt to these changes so this little article on the McKinsey website talks about expanding the ability to operate in a fully digital environment so that might mean not only buying the tech but upskilling some of your employees and making sure that they feel comfortable working with your whole IT ecosystem developing cognitive skills that ensure that they can respond to the need to redesign and innovate and strengthen social and emotional skills to enable effective collaboration. You might not actually notice that collaboration isn't great when you're in the office face to face, but I think um, lack of collaboration really shows up when you've got remote workers, doesn't it? And then building ad adaptability and resilient skills so that your employees can thrive during this. And I think that's really important as well. There's been a, a lot of mention about mental health and well-being but actually building on that and helping them to cope if there are any changes in the future should be part of the training that you're doing for your staff so i think there's been some there's a lot of opportunity for training and absolutely agree with the article that says protect your your training budget because i know it's often the first thing to go when companies are in financial difficulties but what's really key at the moment is that you need skilled, resilient, uh, agile staff. Otherwise, your business is really going to struggle. I should just yes. mention that the um, government has updated the guidance for education and skills providers. Um, this was updated on the 25th of June. And you can find that on gov.uk. And we will put a link for that on our website, which is the business.community. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And this week in other news, I've gone to the ONS again. At the moment, they are a great source of information. And this week, the ONS have asked people if there were aspects of their lifestyle that had changed for the better since the coronavirus pandemic. And almost half of adults asked reported that they had experienced some positive lifestyle changes nice to hear a positive spin on this mm. adults aged between 16 and 69 which seems massively broad were more likely to report that they had experienced some positive lifestyle changes 
However, those aged over 70 were, were quite a lot smaller. So only 24% of those in that age bracket had reported a positive lifestyle change. But 47% of those aged between 16 and 69 had experienced this positive change. So of those who said they'd experienced some positive lifestyle changes, 56% reported that they were now able to spend more quality time with people they lived with. 50% were enjoying a slower pace of life and 47% preferred that they were spending less time traveling. I think that those little bits of information on their own are massive. I think that there's so much to break down into that and to see how potentially society might change. I'll go on with the report. For those aged 70 years and over, the most common positive lifestyle changes were being more in touch with neighbours and having a slower pace of life, followed by keeping in touch more with family and friends. And positive lifestyle change people were most likely to report they would um, keep after the pandemic was increasing the exercise that they're doing. 96% who reported that they were exercising more said that they would continue this positive lifestyle change. And 86% of adults who had reported they were enjoying spending more quality time with the people they lived with wanted to continue this after the pandemic was over. And then this one, over um, a quarter of adults said they were planning to make big changes in their life after the pandemic. And 42% of these people want to make a change to their work. 38% want to make a change to their relationships. And 35% want to change where they live. Now, if you look at, break all of that down, there's a lot of opportunity there for businesses to get in and to enable people to, to make these changes. Obviously, the change in their relationships. We've, we've heard from solicitors before that say, you know, after Christmas and after holidays, there's always a bit of a spike in, in um, divorce applications. So that 38% there in change in relationships might, might be covered by the solicitors, but it might be something else. Um, people want to change their work. People are enjoying not traveling and people are enjoying is having more time to themselves as well. I think the traveling thing is, is a real biggie because your commute is inevitably, it, it has stress elements in it, doesn't it? You leave home and you have to be at work by a certain time uh, and you leave home allowing just enough time for you to travel to work, most of us. And OK, it may be that you include stopping off to pick up a coffee on the way or whatever. But as soon as that starts to go wrong in any way, shape or form, then the stress levels go up. And then, of course, if you're working a bit later and you need to be home to, you know, to fulfill a commitment at home, then your stress levels go up. So it's not just the time. It's not just the travel element. It's the anxiety that can go alongside that. that I think it, it is really important. So at least if people only have to walk to their to their desk at home, they will arrive there in a much calmer and focused frame of mind rather than running late falling through the door thinking oh I haven't even had a cup of coffee and it's all gone my day's started off badly so I think that's a massive one I think that's a, that's really important, really and I important. these work-life balance and um, 
the sort, sort of spending more time with family and friends that sort of trend was happening anyway we flagged that in the future of work discussions that we've had before and and also the idea of flexi working and home working a little bit more they were coming but i think this pandemic has actually brought them on a lot quicker and now companies are going to find it very difficult to recruit and retain staff if they've decided that they want this type of lifestyle and we had been mentioning before that companies have to be aware of this i think even more so now if companies are going to offer people the type of lifestyle that that fits in with what they've tasted here during these weird few months then they're going to find that they can recruit and retain staff much better but just looking on the positive side here if you're into a, a fitness trainer or you run a gym or, or some sort of exercise coaching company well of all those people that have done extra extra exercise if 96 percent of them want to continue with that that's a massive growth in your market potential Indeed it is. And another um, another interesting spin-off of all of this with people working from home, uh, there was an article on Reuters um, earlier this week stating that roughly half of the UK's employers are planning to reduce office space and stagger return to work as, as restrictions are lifted. They say that um, around 44% of employers are considering cutting down the physical office space that they have and 49% are planning to spread out their employees' return to work so that they don't need as much space. And it may be that they do some, some sort of, um, uh, not hot desking because that's not allowed, but you know, some sort of rotor. It's a poll of about 2,200 companies carried out by a recruitment company. Uh, and I think that as, as, as you already identified, people want to work from home, there's a benefit to businesses in that they can reduce the, the, the real estate that they own, rent, um, heat, light. <laughs> yeah, I think this is going uh, to, to be a story that we, we see play out over the next few months and years, because if this does happen, then there's going to be an awful lot of office space empty. And so the next story, we've, we've talked about the evolution of the high street, what about the evolution of office space? What's going to happen to all of that space? I, I think that there could be some very exciting things that could be done with it. I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't just stay empty for a long time. I think it might take a little bit of innovation and create creativity. But I, I do think that the reality is going to be there's going to be a lot of empty offices for some time. Yes, which will which will be very unfortunate, but maybe we'll see the repurposing of them in some in some way, shape or form. Uh, one other story that I just wanted to flag up uh, that came out this week is uh, regarding John Lewis. Um, they have appointed a new executive director, a lady called Pippa Wicks, who was previously with the co-op, has been with um, Topshop, uh, well, Arcadia, uh, and um, now joins the board. She um spent an awful long time uh, sorry she's she's replacing a lady called paula nichols who has been with john lewis for an awful long time but what i think's really really interesting is this now means that the board at john lewis partnership 
is an eight strong board and five of the people on that board are women including the the uh the chairman uh which uh, yeah is when we when we've when we've looked in the past at female representation on boards um uh, pay scales etc it's always a really positive thing and i think john lewis generally speaking can be credited with with thinking having a quite forward thinking approach to these types of things you know the whole um what do they call it they call their partners aren't they are they all is everybody at john lewis a partner or something is that what they call them i think so yeah yes i think yeah yeah partnership isn't it that's it yes yes that's right yeah yeah so anyway i thought that was an interesting one um but I'll, i'll um i'll pop a link to that story and all of the things that we've talked about in this section on our website, which is the business.community. In our discovery section this week, I've got um, an organisation that I happened upon whilst coaching a client earlier um, earlier in the, in the week, earlier in the, well, the end of last month, because we're in July now, crikey. Um, and it something that i'd never heard of she meant the lady mentioned it in passing and i said well i've never heard of that what are you talking about and it's msduk.org.uk and i said right okay tell me a bit more about that and essentially they are an organization that works with ethnic minority owned businesses that they call emb's in the uk and that makes up around 300,000 businesses which is 7% of all SMEs. Uh, and what, what they aim to do is they help these organisations to, they almost act as a sort of conduit between these SMEs and larger organisations so that there is, um, there's the creative, the creative element, but also that representation. Um, so EMBs are underrepresented in both public and private sector. And that means that organisations don't necessarily see an alternative supply chain option, which might then bring you ideas to market and might benefit the bottom line. So um, their website is really interesting. Some fantastic articles on there about some of the challenges that affect uh, ethnic minority businesses. It talks about what, uh, how do you define what is classed as an ethnic minority business? And then there's also a number of um, webinars and seminars. So if you are running a business and you you fit into this uh, this category, then there's there are platforms for you to um, to view videos and, and webinars, etc. But you don't have to be running that type of business. And I think what it would do is potentially help us to understand some of the challenges that these businesses might face and then look at how we might collaborate with them so on the website they've got an innovation hub a knowledge hub a procurement hub they've got a list of their events they've got news and articles um, and then obviously there are ways that you can get in touch with them they have partnered with a lot of massive um, massive organizations uh, the likes of uh, accenture barclays uh, what we've we got bt not just places beginning with b edfa energy google uh, and as i say those corporate members sit on one side and then the SME sit on another side and this organization drives 
for them to engage with one another so that you get that that cross fertilization of ideas so i just thought it was really interesting i'd not come across it before and i thought it was worth sharing what, what have you oh sorry yes it's msd for donald uk.org.uk i'll pop a link on the website what have you discovered this week tracy Okay, so I'll be honest here. I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read a business blog or watch a podcast or read a business book. And I ended up reading two fictions and um, spending a lot of time watching videos about Teslas. So now you've got a little insight into my life. To be fair, I don't <laughs> often read fiction. Most of my reading is nonfiction. A lot of it is for the show and and general interest so this week for me to read two fiction books well that that's news to be perfectly honest okay but i did enjoy those books and then the tesla so i'm getting a new company car and i thought why not i probably wouldn't get this myself i've gone and ordered a tesla model 3 i wanted to go all electric and then I, I just asked somebody who I thought might have a good idea of what good electric cars are, because I didn't. And uh, I said, well, what, what car would you get? And he said, the Model 3. So I looked it up. It was in my price range. And Bob's your uncle. It's on order. And I'm very excited. But I've got to say, a little bit nervous. So oh, been... why? Why nervous? Well, I've been watching lots of videos on um, what the car looks like. And one of the first things to mention is... There is no um, instrumentation or panels on the dashboard at all. Completely clear dashboard. There's not even any vents. The vent is just one long, thin line across the dashboard. So all of the controls are on this 15-inch iPad type thing in the middle of the car. It's, okay. So point number one, I quickly had to go and say, okay, so how do you drive this thing? But I was absolutely fascinated by just the sheer number of videos that were that were on YouTube and other platforms just about this one model of car. There are a lot of enthusiasts out there, but they were really, really useful. Different things that, you know, something you might not know about it if you haven't had a Tesla before or if you have uh, read the manual so you don't have to. And little tips and tricks um, that you can find out i mean for example my uh the car that i've ordered has an inbuilt whoopee cushion in the apps okay. a whoopee cushion <laughs> okay uh just in the passenger seat no no you can you can set it to go off <laughs> um when, when anybody sits in any of the five seats in the car. <laughs> that, that was the clincher for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never mind the environment. <laughs> There's also a uh, romance mode where if you're sitting in the car, maybe waiting while your car charges or, I, I don't know, you're sitting um, in a campsite and you've decided to sleep in your car because you can get mattresses that are designed to fit in the back with the seats down so you can fit a double mattress in the back of this thing um <laughs> and this romance mode just puts um, a, a real flame fire on the screen <laughs> if you find that way that's lovely isn't it <laughs> well 
as you've been speaking, I've just Googled because I couldn't get my head around the whole idea of having no dials. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's basically a steering wheel and a big iPad. Yeah. Yeah. So Amazing. you can imagine that I'm now trying to anticipate the car gets delivered to my place of work. Everybody's looking out the window, Ooh. watching, waiting for me to drive away in it and I, I won't have a clue so yeah there's been a, a certain amount of uh, research just so that I don't look like a complete idiot when the car arrives however it seems quite apt to mention them because uh, on Monday this week the 29th of June Tesla celebrated its 10th year anniversary of going public so in 2010 they went public I think they sold their shares oh i'm trying to find it quickly i've just made all my notes yep they sold one 13.3 million shares at 17 dollars per share um this time in 2010 and so much has happened i had a quick look through now i've always thought that um elon musk was just always the head of tesla he was just one of the other co-founders so it was actually incorporated in 2003 by two people martin eberhard and mark tarpening and other co-founders included elon musk were ian wright and jb straubel and then it was a really fascinating timeline it's on inside businessinsider.com i won't go through the whole lot but it's just amazing how quickly that tesla have actually changed how the public perceives electric cars you know they, they sent a car into space in 2018 yes. so in yes. february 2018 just after we launched this show spacex launched the falcon heavy rocket into space with the tesla roadster yes yeah, you know, i remember that yeah yeah I think we even discussed it. One of our photos and our blog is of the car yeah, and space. The car. But one other thing that I think is really interesting is that um, the idea that once upon a time, I can remember uh, Oxford Services, you know, when you're driving down to London, you stop at Oxford Services and there are all these charging points for Teslas and there were never any cars in them. You know, just be like uh, one Tesla. And, and you're like, well, OK, what's all that about? because it was sort of an elitist vehicle, you know, that it wouldn't be accessible to the likes of you and I. That's not to say it's cheap, but it is now much more accessible. And now there are more cars, more Teslas in the charging points at Oxford Services. And that's that's no coincidence. So I think it's become more accessible and people are, are willing to take a punt on it. So is it is it pure electric or is it hybrid? No, completely electric, yeah. Wow. And what's the range on the um, a oh, charge? Could you remember? 150 miles, I think, maybe more. I, um, right. But it's way more than I need for my little trundle to work and back every day. Right, right, yeah. And, yeah, um, interesting, interesting. So I'm really looking I... forward to that. When I get it, I'll do a, a full review uh, <laughs> on how to drive it out of the car park. <laughs> Until then, I'm just going to keep on researching all these wonderful videos on YouTube that people, <laughs> there is a business element to this because the people who are making the videos, most of them, they seem to be making these videos professionally and they have um, a link. So, you know, they, they, they've got a link and people can get discounts or I think in a lot of cases they can get a certain number of um 
um, miles, el electricity miles, um, if they buy their car using those links. And obviously then, then the people who do these videos are, are earning money from it. So there is a business element to this as well, I should just add. We'll, we'll believe you, thousands would <laughs> You're listening to the business community on Calon FM, and this week we've gone a little bit left field with our choice. Um, it's not somebody I'd ever heard of before, but I'm actually glad we stumbled across this gentleman, Sanjit Bunker Roy, the bunker being in inverted commas. He's an Indian social activist and educator who founded something called the Barefoot College. Now, Heather, before we stumbled across this gentleman, had you heard of him? Bunker Roy or Barefoot College yourself before? I'd heard of neither. I'd heard of neither. And uh, yet selected as the Times 100s, um, one of the most influential personalities um, for his work educating illiterate and semi-illiterate rural Indians. There you go. Maybe we weren't looking in the right place. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think what he's done is incredible. I think it's quite niche. I don't, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it would pop up all over the business biography world um, pages. But but a really really interesting story. Did um, there's a TED talk? He gives a TED talk. I, don't, I know how much you like TED talks. Have you? I don't have, have believe you? I, I'm. I didn't see his TED talk. The TED Talk popped up when we were initially talking about who we were going to um, um, profile this week, and I completely yeah. forgot to look. I was too busy looking at Teslas, to be honest. <laughs> Normal service will be resumed next week. Did you see it? I did. And when I started watching it, I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. But actually, he's very understated. And he, um, he was born in 1945. Uh, and he has... It, I'm not saying he's only got one story, but the, the story that he tells is the one that he tells repeatedly. A little bit like our friend Ernesto Soroli, who talks about the hippopotamus eating the, um, tomatoes. the tomatoes that have been planted in the, in the, in the dried riverbed. Um, essentially, he comes from a very um, a, a, a good family. He had uh, the most expensive education in India that he could. Um, he was um, he came from quite an elitist school background and he was set to be a diplomat or a teacher or a doctor and his parents um, thought that his path was set but he went um, out and about traveling and found came across a village in a very poor part of India and saw people dying of hunger dying of starvation etc and he went back to his mother and he said um, I don't want to do those other things. I want to live and work in a village. And his mother went, you know, bonkers, really, because she was like, what? All that education, etc." And he said, no, no, I want to go and dig wells for five years. So he goes to this, this village and he works in this village and he sets up the Barefoot College, which is a college only for poor people. He said that if you're rich, you're not allowed to go if you're poor you're allowed to attend if you have any qualifications you are not allowed to go it is for people who own uh, who have no qualification and essentially he built this college into something where people came and tried out what did he say you have to be a cop out or a washout or a dropout yes yeah that's right. college. 
which is which is beautiful and basically he says that you have to show that you've got a skill that you can offer to the community and that you can serve the community with and that's that's it uh, and from that he redefined what a professional was what's needed in society and he built on that and has taken it to a scale where he started educating women uh, predominantly grandmothers and they now um uh, he, they now he trained them to um, make solar uh, torches effectively and through this across the world there are thousands and thousands of people in communities who have electricity off-grid obviously that, that wouldn't ordinarily have done and and he talks about how he did that and why he did it and he talks about it he's quite witty but he's he's quite straightforward he's like you know we, we, with the way we, we the way we talk people is we talk them with puppets because we had uh, literacy um issues and also language issues between different different groups of people so really really interesting ted talk i loved it i loved it so i i went from okay let's give this a go to oh yeah all right this is fantastic well i had a look at the website for the barefoot college uh, barefootcollege.org and uh, I just want to read out what their mission is they say that we believe in the endless potential of the rural poor Barefoot College forges a first of its kind women-centered global network dedicated to sustainable development in every community where poverty exists and just a few of the facts and figures were absolutely astounding so they've been going for close to 50 years now and they operate in 1300 villages in 80, 80 countries around the world and the impact of direct training and services has impacted 2 million people now i heard i read a figure somewhere else um, that wasn't on their web, website that said 3 million people but i'm going to go with what's on the Bear Co barefoot college website and Impacting those 2 million people, they've given communities access to clean water, safe and reliable energy. And I think that in itself is an amazing story. You just have to read those two paragraphs about what their mission is and, and the number of people that they're actually helping to realise that this is a, a very big story and one that I'm amazed I'd never heard of before. Absolutely. One other really interesting strand is this whole thing about women, that he has um, empowered these women. So he says that they are both literally and figuratively the source of power in their remote villages. And there was one occasion where he went somewhere, uh, he, was, he was looking for women to come to learn how to make these solar um, torches so that they could then go back into their own communities and teach people to do it, teach women to do it there. And he was on a, on a recce really. And he said, oh, I want that woman there. And they said, oh, you, you know, she's got no language. He said, I don't care. I like her body language. I like the way she speaks to me. She's engaged with the whole process. They said, well, her husband won't let her come. He said, well, bring me her husband. He said, right, your husband can come with you. And, uh, and the man wasn't that keen. And he said, well, you know, if, what 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 do you think is going to happen is she going to run off with an indian man you know and it was he, he kind of challenged him as if to say well you know if you're good enough 
you know she'll stick with you and um he said that he saw her um she she came she came and she learned and she took the stuff back and she basically was like oh husband oh i don't know he's off doing whatever she wasn't at his beck and call so he was emancipating and liberating these women but it was benefiting the communities it's, yeah. it, it is a really lovely story it is a lovely uh, another story. sentence that i think really illustrates that beautifully is um on the barefoot college website they say we train women worldwide as solar engineers innovators and educators who then return to their villages to bring light and learning to their community Literally. Brilliant. i love that so it's a journey of empowerment and they say it's a one village at a time one woman at a time and then their aim is to demystify and decentralize technology and to put the tools in the hand of the poor people so it's this self-sufficiency and sustainability that's really at the core of what they're aiming to do i'll, I'll put i will put a link to the ted talk there are several there are several versions of him telling this story um, and obviously he's told them over the years but i think that the ted version uh, is the is the most recent and he has honed it beautifully so it's it you know it's it's a beautifully rounded story uh, and yeah and it and it is captivating with just the right amount of humor so i'll put a link to that on our website which as you know is the business.community so i think that's about all we've got time for this week um if you have got any comments then please engage with us via facebook so pop along to our our um, facebook page which is the business community and uh, we'll be back next week with more news views and reviews from the world of business you've been listening to the business community with me tracy jones and me heather noble Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.